right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Romans 3 and 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. I love these two chapters. I love this whole book. They say, uh, um, as a Christian, by the time you're 10 or 15 years old in the Lord, your Bible, when you drop it, ought to just absolutely fold open to Romans 8, just so you know. So um, that's the, the chapter of all chapters, so... Um, before, I bet, before we jump into this, a couple announcements. We do have prayer this Sunday, uh, 7 o'clock. Join us for that. But along with that, um, our, uh, next week, the 13th, we're going to have prayer down at Grace. Um, if you want to join us for that, they're having their prayer night. And I said, well, I'd love to come down. Josh Blevins is the new pastor down there. And um, he said, come on down anytime. So I'm going. I don't know if Jenny's going or not, but um, we put it out there for anybody that wants to join us. We'll leave from the parking lot here at 5. And uh, we'll head down and, and uh, pray with them for an hour or so and just spend some time with them and, and uh, seek the Lord. So anyway, that's this Sunday here, prayer, um, 7 o'clock, and then next Sunday there, down in, down in St. Joe, uh, Grace, or Calvary Chapel Grace. And uh, so we'll be doing that together. Um, I think that's it for announcements. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this night. We get to spend some time in your word. We get to... Um, fellowship together, to hang out together, have that worship song and that set with Aaron. And uh, we just thank you for Pastor Aaron. We thank you for his heart, for his love for you and his, his ability to uh, use those gifts and his desire to use those gifts. And so we thank you for that. But we pray for tonight that the teaching of your word would change our, our lives. Um, we love the simplicity of this in these two chapters. In Jesus' name, amen. I say simplicity because I read a lot of commentaries on these things and boy, we overthink stuff. We really do. Romans is probably one of the most overthought books, I think. It's full of doctrine, full of great things. The problem with Romans is it's full of proof texts. And if you don't know what that is, what a proof text is, it's that's the text that proves what I believe is true. And so we analyze it. We use Romans like proof text. We got to remember, and you got to back up and see the forest because Paul has a specific purpose for reading this and writing this. And it's to... Basically, these two chapters of three and four, and really the whole book, but three and four especially, is to get rid of some prejudices that were in the church in Rome. He hadn't got there yet. He wasn't able to share what he wanted to share with them individually. He wasn't sure if he was ever going to get there. And so he writes this book while he's in Corinth. And he says, I want you to read this. I want you to understand these things. These are things I'd like to pass on to you in person, but I can't. So until I get there, this will have to do. And so he's very thorough, for sure. And there's a lot of doctrine and there's a lot of proof texts, you know, but all he's trying to get across to them, this is, this is it. You can tune out after this, don't, but this is, you can do it. It's just to let the Gentiles and the Jews know who are sitting together in church for the first time, because they've never done that before, that they're the same. That's it. Jews, Gentiles, you're the same as far as God's concerned. Think about all the different ways we break up into groups. In this world, we, the world, and hopefully not Christians, but sometimes Christians can fall into this too. We look for any opportunity to gain advantage over somebody else, men over women, for example, or women over men, depending on what era we're in, you know, um, age over youth, youth over age. It's the same. You know, ah, those, those young whippersnappers. And then the young whippersnappers, you can't trust you, you screwed up the world, you know. And so there's that. Um, there's color. Uh, there's ethnicity, um, so many ways we try to divide. Education 
over the uneducated, you know, uh, trade school versus whatever, you know. Um, there's just so many different ways you try to gain advantage. Well, that's what Paul's trying to deal with here. Um, several times through his letters, and we'll pick up on this as we work our way through the New Testament, but he'll talk to the business owners and say, you guys need to be good business owners, and you employees need to be good employees, like Christians are supposed to be, because you're a witness to each other. Then when you come to church, sometimes these employees are the elders of the church and the employers are just lay people who just, you know, they just sit and listen and they're not really active in the church or whatever. And, and now all of a sudden these employees on Sunday or whenever they worship, but Sunday, were over these employers. And so there's this switching of roles between Sunday and Monday. And Paul desperately wanted everybody to understand, you're, you're, the, you're equal in God's eyes. God's, if you zoom out on the planet... <laughs> And you get God's perspective on all of us little people down here trying to say, I'm older than you, or I'm younger than you, and I'm a different color than you, and I'm more educated than you. He's looking and says, no, you guys don't get it. The differences between you all is so minor compared to my perspective. You need to compare yourself to me is the idea. And that's all Paul's trying to get across here. Say, Jews, great. Gentiles, great. But don't be like that. Don't be this divided group where... And it was really easy to spot. When they would come into church, the Jews dressed like Jews, whatever that looked like, and the Gentiles definitely dressed like Gentiles, whatever that looked like. And it was an obvious thing. And it was rare that they'd ever sit next to each other. It was just this constant division. And so they brought these prejudices from being Jewish people, Hebrews, the chosen people of God, and these Gentiles who for their entire lives heard from the Jews how worthless they were and that they were firewood for hell. And now they're sitting next to each other under the beautiful authority of Jesus Christ. And they're still, you know, a little like this, you know, looking at each other. That's all these two chapters are. Let's work our way through it here. Verse one, what advantage then has the Jew... Or what is the profit of circumcision? That's what we went over last week. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. Made everybody uncomfortable talking about circumcision as much as I could. What advantage is there then? What's the profit of the circumcision of being a Jew, basically? Much in every way, Paul says. Chiefly, mainly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are a judge. I don't know that I could have written this any better than Paul, but it is my job as a pastor and as a teacher to uh, give a sense of the meaning. That's what I'm called to do. And so sometimes the way Paul writes, is just not how we talk to each other a lot of times. And so he does a lot of rhetorical questions throughout this entire book. And what that means is, if you don't know what that means, some don't, that you ask a question, but it doesn't need an answer. It's obvious. It's obvious what the answer is. What is the advantage and the profit of being a Jew? There is. There is an advantage, Paul says. You were given the word of God. Nobody else in the world was given the word of God. You were given custody, chain of custody over the oracles of God, over the very words that came out of God's mouth. You were given custody of that. That's a, that's a big deal. It's an honor. Now, don't take that honor as being righteousness, is what he's going to try to explain. Here's what I mean. Um, I've been given a Bible. It's a beautiful leather Bible. It's getting a little more beat up every day. You can see where my thumb is. That's where I hold it all the time. It's getting wore out, but I, it's mine, Bible. You know. 
But me holding this Bible and showing everybody my Bible and talking about the contents of my Bible as far as the leather goes and all the beautiful, I've got a, I've got a ribbon um, that I use sometimes. And isn't that, this doesn't make me a Christian. It doesn't make me a pastor. It doesn't make me any holier than anybody else in the, on the planet. Neither does con- holding the word of God for him. Being his, it's like saying, I'm, I'm a librarian. Have you read all the books? Well, no. I know, but I'm the librarian. I'm the custodian of all these books. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you've retained all the knowledge in this place. It just means that you're the custodian. So Paul tries to even things out because you could almost see as he goes through this book, as he says, now Gentiles are just as good as Jews. You could see the Gentiles standing up and saying, yeah. And then he says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Jews, the Jews do have the word of God. That, that's important. Yeah. And he's trying to get rid of the yeahs. He's trying to get them together is what he's trying to do. So you'll see him go back and forth with this. What advantage then? Because you could see all the, you know, the Roman Gentiles going, yeah, Jews, you're no better than us. Wait a minute. Hold on. God did choose them and give them the word of God. So there's an advantage there. You don't have to feel smaller. They're trying to get above everybody. Being a Jew, being a Gentile, being by grace, by law, all these things are they're jockeying for position. And Paul is desperately trying to get them to stop jockeying for position. All of us have to stop jockeying for position. Color-wise, age-wise, gender-wise. We can see the world doing it. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing when we find ourselves doing the same thing. You know, um, the word escapes me now. I'm trying to think of what it is, but there's a, but intersectionality, is that the word I'm looking for? The new, where, uh, is that right? That's what I'm trying to, intersectionality, where um, you're a victim. Um, but the, but the more letters you have after your name for victimhood makes you higher up on the victim chain, basically, intersectionality. So I'm a female, I'm already a victim, right? No offense, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm just picking th- th- names out of a hat here. I'm a female. Well, I'm a black female. And so therefore, a little more. See, that's how intersectionality. I'm a black female who is a lesbian. See, the, oh, now look at me. Look at me now. You know? And that, oh, well, I'm a transgender. Well, well, then that puts me down a peg. That makes you up a peg. That's intersectionality. The world is jockeying for position of victimhood. And we see that happening. I'm the biggest victim in the world. I get the most attention. I get the most ribbons on my chest. I've got a pink ribbon. I've got a yellow ribbon. I've got a black and white spotted ribbon. I've got the most, you know. Paul is desperately trying to stop that from happening in the church. Victimhood, you know, or jockeying for position. You do have an advantage in a prophet. Don't think of yourself as less than the Gentiles. You were given the oracles of God. Now he's going to move on to this next section, which he'll, visit again in, in, in verse five here, but this unbelief is working into another thing. So what if some people don't believe these oracles of God? Does that make the faithfulness of God without effect? Of course not. It doesn't make it less true. Two plus two is four. I don't think that's true. I think it's five. Well, that doesn't make you right. And it doesn't make two plus two being four wrong. God is true and every man is a liar. In other words, if the entire world decides that two plus two equals five, it is not the answer. It doesn't matter how many people. We live in a country where for the most part, for most of our lives, we have been the majority as believers in Jesus Christ. 
And so it's very easy to say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by him. But as we become less and less prominent in our country, as it is in the rest of the world, as our country begins to uh, renounce Jesus Christ as its Lord and Savior or its predominant religion or relationship with God, and more and more move in until all of a sudden we become the minority, then your medal's going to be tested as a Christian. Because not everybody you talk to at Hy-Vee or Walmart or in your circle of friends is going to agree with you automatically or feel like they can't say anything because they're in the minority. You'll be in the minority. We'll be in the minority. And if the whole world says that Jesus Christ is not the way, the truth, and the life, where will you stand? Will you stand up? Will you say, yes, he is? Absolutely. Even if it means your life. Even if it means being fired. Even if it means... uh, We'll cut off relationships. That's our biggest fear, I think. Well, what if my kids don't talk to me anymore? I don't know what to tell you. If you love your kids more than you love Jesus Christ, then you're not worthy of Christ. Jesus said that. I didn't. Jesus is the most important. He's everything to you. And when we're in the majority, great. But when we become the minority, that's when our metal will be tested. That's what Paul's saying. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. It's Psalm 51. It's right out of there. Now he says it's written because you've been given the oracles of God. Being a Jew is good. Now he moves on. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Okay, not exactly how I would write that, you know, but it's, it's, it's thorough and it's accurate. It's very simple. There's nothing more. I think we all grasp it, but I'm going to say it anyway. The simplicity of this is, if grace is inexhaustible and God shows and demonstrates how beautiful he is by forgiving sinners for their sins, shouldn't I sin more? That's all he's saying. Because some are saying that. Some are teaching that Paul teaches that wherever he goes. Paul's telling you to just sin as much as you want to because there's so much grace and every time you sin, you just make God look better. And he says, that's slanderous. I've never taught that is what he's saying. I've never taught that you should sin more, that grace may abound, that God could be glorified all the more. Should we? Of course we shouldn't. Certainly not. These are ridiculous arguments, Paul says. I can't believe I have to even address them. But we do sometimes. The idea is that my unrighteousness demonstrates God's perfection, so therefore... And if it does, why does God judge anybody anymore? How can he say that I'm doing something wrong when I sin, when actually when I sin, I make him look better? For someone who loves sin, for someone who doesn't want to give up sin, and someone who doesn't understand the gospel and what it was intended to do, to not only save us from our sins, but to help us to live a better life, to stop sinning, that's, that's, that's all of it. Not just half of it, but all of it. We have to understand that our, right, our unrighteousness needs to go away. It's not for salvation. 
Paul's going to go over that to make sure everybody understands that we're saved by what God has done for us at the cross, but that that doesn't mean we carry on in the life that we were saved from. That's ridiculous to think that. He doesn't under, even understand that. How could anybody even think that I would teach something like that? But that's what, that's what they say. And he finishes with, their condemnation is just. They're lying. It's not what I teach. They're condemned. Next section, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. <laughs> Meaning Jews. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. And so now this section here has been misused. All he's trying to say is we're all broken. There's none that's righteous. No, not one. So in other words, no one's going to heaven on their own merits. There is none who understands. We all have to be instructed and taught. Nobody gets it. They have to be given it. There is none who seeks after God. This is one of those verses that gets misused, and I even hate to bring it up because most of you don't even know how it's misused. And once I start teaching why it's misused in the church, then they start going, well, what's that mean? I, didn't, I never even knew that kind of doctrine was out there. Now I want to look into that doctrine. So I'm almost embarrassed to even bring it up. But let me tell you what it, what it does mean. What it does mean is that nobody seeks after God until they have this heart, until they decide to, until they, they, they realize where they stand, and then they begin to seek after an answer. The law, which Paul's about to get at, the Ten Commandments, the sins, the things that bring conviction in our lives— causes us to look up for an answer. Then we do seek after God. And God reaches down and saves us. He's not saying that no one can seek after God. No one seeks after God until God makes them seek after him. That's not what it's saying. No one is righteous. He's just trying to make the comparison between Jews and Greeks. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Jews or Greeks have all, they have all turned aside. They've all come together for, to become unprofitable. Nobody is more righteous than the other person. There is none who does uh, good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. They're all equally vile with, with what they say. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Jews and Greeks. Jews and Gentiles, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everybody is vile before the Lord. They're all broken. They're all separated from him. Jews and Greeks, that's all he's saying. He's not saying any more than that. We equally need God. Now, he says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Does everybody remember when God gave the law to Moses? He's up on top of the mountain. He disappears for 40 days. Like, I don't even know. Aaron, you're in charge. It's in the Exodus. Let me back up. They leave Egypt, right? This gaggle of millions of people. They're following a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. That's, that's all they know. They're smoking the day, fire at night. Here we go. And they follow him. He stops. 
and says, now, Moses, I want you to come up here. I'm going to give you some, some rules, you know. These are rules that have always been true. I want to give them to you. So he goes up, says, Aaron, you're in charge. And as soon as Aaron's in charge, we don't know how long he's been up there, but it's been a long time, been three, four weeks at this, at this point. And they said, we don't even know if he's coming back. Make us a god so that we can worship this god. And so Aaron decides to make this golden calf out of all their earrings and you know, puts it in a cast, molds it, they lift it up, and they begin to worship this god with all the sins that they, they've just been delivered from in Egypt. That's all they ever knew. It's like a toddler being given a jar of cookies. Have one. Eh, they're going to eat them all, you know, kind of thing. They're just a young group of people that don't know what to do. Before the law even comes down from the mountain that lists all the things they shouldn't do, they're already doing them. The law is meant to codify. It's meant to show them. It's a speed limit. If I'm going 90 miles an hour down 246 out in Hopkins, you know, you know, here I go. I don't need a speed limit sign to tell me that I'm wrong, but I do need a speed limit sign for him to write me a ticket, you know, kind of thing, so to speak. I, I mean, we all know that there's nothing over 70 uh, or so in this country. And so obviously I'm breaking the law, but the, the speed limit sign lets me know instantly. That's the law. I was breaking the law long before I hit the speed limit sign. You see, and the law came to show me that. What is the law? It's one of those funny questions. The law is very simple. The law is a list of things that God likes and what he doesn't like. It's his, it's his character. His character's never changed. It's always been the same. It's not like he came up with laws like we come up with laws. Well, do you think that'd be good for the group? And we all kind of talk about it. Well, I think we better do that. Okay, let's make that a law. And then we send the bill up to Congress and they agree. And we vote on it and we say, this is a new law. Ta-da. You know, no, the, the law that God gave to the Jews is simply written down God's character. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Here's what I expect from you. That's what the Ten Commandments are and all the other laws that he gave, okay? It just is him. That's why the law is perfect. That's why nothing can be removed from the law. That's why the law had to be fulfilled by somebody else other than us because it's his character. It's who he is. I don't murder. I don't like people that do murder. So I don't want you to murder. I'm the only God out there. I'm the only one you should worship. To worship anything other than me is absolutely ridiculous because there is nothing else to worship. I'm the creator of all life and everything. I'm the one true God, worship me. So he writes these things down for us so we understand. There is no other. But by the time he comes down from the mountain, they've already done all this. The law was simply meant to show them you're guilty. You're guilty of these things. So that in case there was any argument or any doubt in anybody's mind or any kind of lawyering that people like to do, you know, well, I didn't know that we couldn't worship calves. You never said we couldn't worship calves. There it is. Number one, I shall have no other gods right here, you know, is the idea. So Paul simply says that. You can't fulfill not murdering people and consider yourself righteous because of all the other things you've already committed. It's like saying, I, 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 I've, I've broken, you know, I've killed and killed and killed and killed, but now that I know that it's wrong, I won't do that anymore, you know? Now that you've given me law, that doesn't pay for all the past sins I've ever done, all the other people I've ever killed. So Paul says, you, you, you can't go to heaven just because you haven't killed somebody recently, you know, kind of thing. It doesn't work like that. What God has done for us at the cross is completely separate from the law. 
doesn't make up the difference. I think we misunderstand that. I think we think that, and there, it's probably true. There are some people that are kind of better than other people. They're not as big of sinners, you know, and, and we get that scale and we kind of understand that. And it's probably true to, to some extent. I, I have never killed 6 million Jews. Okay. So I'm a little better than Hitler. So I, I think I'm higher up on that level. I've done a lot of other sins, but I've never gone to that level, you know, so he's a little lower than I am. Probably true. And we get the idea that Jesus has come to make up the difference between my lack and, and Hitler's lack. You know, Hitler needed Jesus a whole lot more than I needed Jesus. And that's not how it works. That's not how salvation works. He doesn't make up the difference, okay? He is everything. That's it. He, it's salvation apart from that. Um, to the Jews and the Gentiles that he is writing to, quit trying to see in the church who's better, more of a sinner, you know, and that was the idea. The Jews needed a little bit of their Savior, but the Gentiles needed a lot of Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. None of the things you ever did for the Lord is helping you get to heaven. That's not the idea. You're either lost or you're not. You're either separated from God or you're not. One sin separates me from God eternally. What Jesus came to do was to bridge that gap, to bring you back to the Lord. That's what he's trying to teach. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Both Jews and Gentiles are all guilty. We're all wearing orange jumpsuits. We all are chained in the hand and we're all going across Market Street like this to court. Nobody in that line saying, I'm in front, you know. No, 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 we're all standing before the judge to get rid of that idea. You know, you ever remember the hall monitors or the class monitors when the teacher would leave the, you know, they'd leave the room. Anyone who went to public school ever go through that, you know? I never got the job, by the way, you know? I was the kid that needed to be watched. But there were certain kids that were always picked, and you know who they were, and maybe you were one of them. (laughs) They were the ones that loved to tell and loved to make check marks and loved to be on the board, and, you know, they just loved that. They forgot they were students. As soon as the teacher left the room, all of a sudden they felt like they were a little above everybody else. You know, No talking. She said no talking. Well, you just talked. You're as guilty as I am because you just talked out loud, you know, kind of thing. And, and that all starts, you know. Somehow or another, we come to this cross. Forgive me if I turn my back to you, but there's this cross. Right now we have a dub. Let's imagine there's a cross here and there's Jesus. And I come up to the cross as a wicked sinner, and I touch the cross. And I say, oh, God, forgive me all for all my sins. All of a sudden, I turn my, my face towards everybody else and say, okay, now it's me and Jesus. Now it's me and Jesus and you guys. And we get this idea that we're like helping, and that we're like a little bit better, a little bit higher. You, have you come to Jesus? You need to get up here. I see you in the back. Come on over here. We should never, ever turn around, ever. We should always be like this, facing the cross, and and like Andrew, hey, you need to come and meet meet him with me. And and you need to come and meet him with me. We should never be on this side. We're not co-redeemers, you know? That's what he's trying to get at. Jews, you're not, you are important and God loves you and he gave you the oracles of God, but you're not better than the Gentiles. Gentiles, just because I said that, doesn't mean you get to point the finger at them and call them out for their hypocrisy. 
Nobody gets justified by the deeds of the law. No flesh, none of it. But here's the good news, verse 11. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. All means all, not some, not chosen, not elect, not few, all who believe. We all have the option and choice and are given the ability to follow the Lord, to believe on him. It'd be ridiculous for Jesus to say, all who believe on me, but I didn't give you the option. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Calvinism. I'm trying not to put too fine a point on it here. It's a very difficult thing. Calvinism believes that some are chosen and some are not. It's a very it's a struggle for me. Chuck always told us, "Not why don't, you, don't even bring it up. Don't even bring it. You don't want to alienate half the crowd in your in your in your congregation." It's very difficult when you come across passages, and especially the Book of Romans, that is used as proof texts for that doctrine, which tells us and teaches us that some just can't get to heaven, and that's not what it teaches. That's not what Paul is bringing up here. He's simply trying to show that Jews and Gentiles are the same, equally broken before the Lord, equally in need of a Savior. And anybody that believes will have this beautiful righteousness of God, even God's righteousness given to them, imputed to them, placed upon them. Apart from the law, it has nothing to do with, well, you're mostly dressed with pants. All you need is a shirt of righteousness. And you, well, you've got a shirt. You definitely need pants of righteousness, you know. No, everybody needs to get the robe on and cover up whatever it is they're wearing and wear the righteousness of God to every single person, no matter how close to God they are. That's what he's teaching here. You get the righteousness of God imputed to you. Now, that should bring great relief to us. Because even we with ourselves, whether we're pointing the finger at everybody else, which is what they're having problems with here, Jews are better than Gentiles. If we're not saying that out loud, we're pointing our fingers at ourselves. We still have scales in our heart. We still have this thing. I think I'm a better person today than I was before. Oh, then you do something stupid. Kaplunk. Oh, boy, I thought I was further along with God than this. I better get my act together because I'm not. We're going through that right now. How many denominations are putting ashes on their heads tonight? I was in a board meeting. I got to take a drink for this. It's just water. What I meant was, (laughs) I was in a board meeting where there was a plethora of denominations represented. And I had made some comment at some other board meeting that offended somebody else of another, you know, imagine I offended somebody. And uh, they were trying to bring up this very season that we're in right now, um, or moving into, or they're moving into, how important it was to fast and how important it was to, uh, to embrace this season and all, and uh, how it was very biblical for them to fast at different times. And I, and I agreed. It, there are times when, you, when, when God puts it on your heart to fast, how important that is. And, and she was very content. She thought she had 
figured how, how to straighten me out. And I said, but it's not, it's not biblical. And she looked at me like, and she looked at everybody else on the board like, is this guy an idiot or what? Like I, we were talking about two separate things and she couldn't make the distinction between uh, church tradition and fasting. Look, fasting is biblical, absolutely. Lent is not. It's not. That's a church tradition that's been brought into the church that we've decided to collectively tell everybody that now's the time to fast. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says about fasting. Fasting is this. I think I need to fast. I think I need to deny my flesh so I can get closer to the Lord. I think I need to take this time, you know, to do this. It's personal. So, of course, that is biblical. Me telling you, tonight, line up. Not. It's not here. And so when I said, I agree, fasting is good. And when I said it, I should have been very clear, but I wasn't apparently. Lent is not. It's a difference. And so it's hard for people that get caught up in the traditions of a religion to make a distinction between what the Bible teaches and what church tradition teaches. If you want to participate in Lent, you should absolutely participate in Lent because it's your decision to do so. It's something that you feel that you need to do for God, but it cannot be um, commanded. It cannot be um, put upon you. It's something that you need to decide to do. The difficulty is, is, well, I think I've made it clear. I guess I don't need to go any further than that. But because I, I, I know though, someone's going to listen and not understand what I just said. And I'll have to explain for the next three weeks what I meant. Um, it's very frustrating because the Jews are having a difficult time in this passage and in this entire book making a separation between being a Jew and being a believer in God. Because I'm circumcised, because we have the oracles of God, because the word chosen people, because we have Abraham, because we have Moses, because, 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 is ingrained in them to think that that is salvation, and it's not. That that is what God wants from them, and it's not. Um, they are blessings and they are true statements, but it's not the relationship that God wants to have. The Gentiles actually have a much clearer understanding of what it means to be a child of Abraham than the Jews had. Because the Jews were taken as a child of Abraham and brought on this road of law-giving and law-keeping and all these things to be the custodians of God's word. And the Gentiles, not having a clue, just came to God because they knew they were separated from him and they loved him. And they had this beautiful, beautiful relationship with Jesus. And there was a lot that had to be undone. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, to try to undo that, to unravel that. No, no, no. And we're going to get into it here. Every animal sacrifice that was ever offered at the temple and at the tabernacle and any other place that you ever offered up an animal was meant for forbearance. It was like saying, the bank saying, I'm, I'm calling your loan due. You, 
you need to bring in all the money and then you somehow talk to them and say, but here's $10 towards that. Can I, okay, well, we'll forbear foreclosing on you. We won't exercise our right. Every animal sacrifice was simply that. When Christ came, he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and wiped out all the debt. There is no forbearance anymore. There is nothing coming. There is nobody knocking on your door. There's no uh, auction that's going to take place at the courthouse to sell your property. It's, it's not forbearance. It's paid in full. It's a big difference. That's what he's trying to get across. Anybody that wants to believe can believe. If there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood. That's just what I said. He is the payment. He's the fulfillment. He is redeemed us. There is no forbearance anymore through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, or at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul's a very smart guy, and he writes like a very smart guy, and I understand that, and I'm glad that he did. It's very thorough and very clear but it does take a lot of digesting sometimes to read this, to go through these words that we don't use every day, forbearance, redemption, um, uh, propitiation. <laughs> um, these things are not words that we use all the time. And so to break this down, I hope you understand what's happened here. Paul is simply saying all that you Jews have ever gone through is these animal sacrifices, which were the forbearance to Christ who would take it away. And now he's become the just, he's the judge and the justifier all in one, in Jesus. He has fulfilled the law. There is no more law to fulfill. It's not taken away. God's character is what it is, and it always will be. He's just fulfilled it. I've been given this robe of righteousness. When the Father, with all that beautiful character, the law, looks at me, he sees it fulfilled because I'm wearing the righteousness of Christ. You're wearing that. That should be very relieving to you. It should be for all of us that I have no scales anymore. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. There's a new law. You know how many laws are in the Old Testament? I had somebody told, you know how many laws? 600 and some laws. We think 10. 10 commandments. No, there's 600 plus laws you need to keep that demonstrate the character of Christ and the character of God, right? 600. You didn't even know there were 600. Can you imagine how many you've broken? If not all, there's a new law. It's the law of faith. Believing on Jesus. How do I fulfill the law? You believe on the one who fulfilled the law. I have faith in Jesus. I trust in him. And he explains it. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You understand that? I made it clear. The law is the character of God. We fall short of the character of God. We have to be holy like he's holy, and we're not. Therefore, there's a brokenness, a separation. We put on the righteousness of Christ because he fulfilled the law. He is the character of God, and he puts that on us. And so when God sees his character on us, he says, good to go. That's faith. That's it. How do we establish the law? By agreeing we need to wear the robe. That's how I establish the law. The character of God is true. It's right. It's perfect. It's awesome. I'm not. I know that I need to wear different clothes. I need to have a different character. So I put on the robe. We establish the law. Chapter four in two and a half minutes. What then? (laughs) You thought I wasn't going to do it. I don't know if I, maybe I shouldn't. I probably can't do that, can I? I wouldn't do chapter four justice, would I? That's so important though. We should stay till 10 tonight. I won't. Yeah, I know. They'd walk out. Please read chapter four because chapter four goes with three. It's so important. They go together. I wish I'd talked faster. Because <laughs> chapter four simply gives us an example. Let me run it through you really quick. One through four is Abraham is the example of an uncircumcised person being justified by their actions and their deeds and their works for God. Chapter uh, verses five through Eight is David, a circumcised man being justified by God. So he gives us two examples, uncircumcised and circumcised, both being justified by faith, okay? He moves on to verse 9 through 12 to go back to Abraham saying all of his righteousness was before he was circumcised. And because he did this thing and trusted in God, he was circumcised as a badge to show that he had faith in God. Not It isn't the faith, it just is a badge to show that he was saved and that he had faith. And so Paul really drives this home. You guys are so excited about Abraham. Let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. The circumcision just shows it. That's where chapters one and two came in. What's with this circumcision thing? We are circumcised. No, 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 you don't understand. If you're not obeying God, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. That's what he's talking about. Abraham was circumcised because he believed God. We get it backwards sometimes, and that's where I have to stop. Ah, I get it. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Romans is such a great, wonderful, peaceful, comforting book if we understand what Paul's trying to teach. Jews and Gentiles, equally guilty before God, equally loved by you, Lord, and equally saved by Jesus. One and the same. There's no difference. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There's no distinction made anymore between those two. Lord, help us to see that in our own lives. Help us not to try to get above anybody else, to stand at the foot of the cross, facing the cross, helping others find the cross, that we would bring them to you humbly broken as we are, that they might know that they can come humbly broken to you as well that we get rid of all those barriers that we try to put up, to try get rid of all that intersectionality. I'm a more wicked sinner than you, or I'm less of a sinner than you, or whatever it is that we do. We bring people to you, Lord, that they would put on this beautiful robe, that they trust in you and have faith in you and believe you, that you died on the cross for our sins, and that that faith, that 
acknowledgement, that trusting in you is salvation. Help us to understand this book. In Jesus' name, amen. I know, heavy for a Wednesday night. Good job, everybody. But if you have any questions, I'll be glad to stick around for questions. Or if you need prayer, I'll be glad to pray with you. Um, and we have a great night.